and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour. I'm joined by Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I'm very good. Uh, yeah, ready for action. <laughs> and Mr. Jason Diamond. How are you, sir? Uh, awesome. So we are going to uh, venture on a young Blade Runner's discovery uh, to kind of unearth the secrets of... Uh, Thir- oh, is it 2049, uh, right, in Blade Runner 2049? Um, I always think of it as Blade Runner 2, but of course that's not the name of the film. Um, which, of course, there's this tremendous joy, not least of which because we get to enjoy the beautiful cinematography of uh, Roger Deakins, uh, but also because it's probably one of the most uh, acclaimed kind of uh, sci-fi uh, movies of all time. So let's start with you, Jason. Um, apart from Roger Deakins, who I'll come back to in a sec, did you find the film overall satisfying? Did you... You know, enjoy uh, yeah. I mean, I, I ended up seeing it twice. Uh, once okay. in Dolby Vision, like super laser projector, and then regular, uh, regular two D projection. Uh, the the Dolby Vision was that also an, an audio difference, or do they both have sort of yeah? I think it's Atmos. I think it's Atmos in there too. They have the right. up and down speakers and rumble seats and the whole the whole nine, which in this case really helped for all the. Oh yeah, you know, uh, it's a little startling. Uh, I yeah. I enjoyed it. I mean, I I understand there's plot holes and it's not a perfect film, but uh, I I enjoyed the journey. Uh, Matt, what about you? Is it a film that you really enjoyed, or are you quick to write it off as those that have not been happy with the opening weekend box office are doing? Mm, no, I mean, I I think I I, I would say I, I I enjoyed it. I I think I have some some things that I wished it did and was, uh, but that, um, I think, uh, you know, the, the best, uh, way I could sum it up, I guess my feelings about the movie was I, I loved being in that world for the running time of the movie. I loved going back to that world again and, and sort of being in the hands of, uh, the great Roger Deakins and, um, and, uh, Denis Villeneuve. Uh, I think all that stuff was great. Um, I, I like the movie. I'm, I'm actually really interested in going to see it a second time. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it was cool. It was like, it's one of those ones that it's so complicated for, you know, I think a lot of people maybe in our sort of peer group, because it's a, it's such a important film in sort of cinema history, the original Blade Runner. And it sort of became such a significant film in, um, you know, science fiction and visual effects. And, um, I think a lot of people really have strong feelings about the original. And so to come and do a sequel, I think, um, is a really bold move. Um, but it's also one that I think, <laughs> you know, it, it can't help but like, uh, sort of raise the ire or, um, uh, the skepticism sort of prior to release. And then when you actually get the opportunity to go and see it, I think it's, it's not so it's, it's a, it's a complex affair, you know, to see a, a sequel to, uh, such an important, um, uh, and sort of groundbreaking film, the original. So, yeah. So I guess we should establish which original we're going to use as our baseline because there are quite a few cuts of the original, like more cuts of the original. I think it should be the final cut. The final cut? Okay. And in the final cut version, explain to me um, our worldview on Deckard and whether or not he's a replicant. Uh, Jason? I mean, I luckily I was able to to go see the original again in the theater uh, like three days before I saw the sequel. 
And I mean, I've seen the movie a million times, but I hadn't seen it in a while. And, and I don't think I had seen the final cut, which is only difference from the quote unquote director's cut is that it has the unicorn dream, uh, sequence in it. And I took my kid, uh, who was, you know, almost 11 and he loved it. Right. I loved it. The cinematography's beautiful. And, um, it's, uh, you know, the pacing is, is so slow in something that doesn't really happen much these days. And, uh, you know, there's not much that goes on in it, actually. It's, if you cut it down to today's pacing, I think it would be 40 minutes. I mean, really, there's not a lot of twists and turns. You know, the, the Deckard, they say to Deckard, hey, you have to go do this. And he, then he just goes and does it. Um, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm 99.9% sure he's a replicant because his partner really only makes the stick figures and leaves them at replicants areas, you know, and he makes the unicorn, uh, um, origami for Edward James almost makes the unicorn origami for, um, Deckard and Deckard sort of considered at that point, I guess the unicorn, uh, outside of knowing that Sean Young is also potentially the unicorn open-ended nexus, whatever, um, experimental, uh, replicants. That's my feeling. And I know in the book, which I have not read, but I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain that in the book that it's, it's spelled out that Deckard is a replicant. Where do you think we're sitting, uh, Matt? Uh, in terms of that particular question yeah, about uh, whether or not he's a replicant or not. I think, uh, you know, they leave it, I think, open-ended and ambiguous as well um, in this film. Um, I know that Ridley Scott has come out and he said quite definitively that, you know, the, the director's cut or the final cut rather, um, you know, that, that unicorn shot was a shot actually as uh, it was put on the budget for um, Legend, which yeah. uh, Ridley Scott was in pre-production for while they were shooting or, or doing post-production in Blade Runner. And he w- and Ridley Scott was actually fired at the end of Blade Runner for, I think, about 10 days or two weeks before they came to their senses and rehired him to finish uh, his edit. Um, there's a great documentary on the making of the original Blade Runner, the Dangerous Days documentary that I had never seen until um, just this last uh, like couple months when uh, it was available as part of the, um, the package uh, of the online version that I purchased, uh, HD version on, on just iTunes or whatever. But um, fascinating stuff in there. But I think in the end, like, you know, it, it's, so, it's somewhat left ambiguous in the original film, although Ridley Scott says he is a replicant. I think they sort of uh, allude to him being a replicant in this film. There's the whole thing of um, uh, what Gaff, uh, the Edward James Almost character, uh, says in the old folks' home when he's talking to, uh, I believe it's Kay, right? Um, yep. And he's, they're having that conversation and he says there was something in the eyes, you know, they make some allusion to the fact that like, you know, he may be a replicant. And I think, you know, the, the, the key plot point, you know, spoiler alert, I guess is obvious uh, at this point, but the key plot point in the film is this idea of these replicants, uh, whether Deckard is human or replicant, um, 
you know, I guess we could continue to sort of discuss, but, you know, that uh, he and the Rachel character um, procreate and this idea that if replicants are these genetically engineered uh, humans and if at some point, kind of almost the Jurassic Park thing, you know, where they talk about all the dinosaurs being female so they can't reproduce but then nature finds a way and this whole concept of the replicants of uh, being able to reproduce and produce some sort of a hybrid. Or replicate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And so, you know, I think so, it kind of gets into all those kind of, those kind of uh, yeah, themes. Yeah, see, I read a really interesting essay areas. on that, though, that maybe the most upsetting aspect, if you don't overlay a Jurassic um, sort of worldview, but overlay, uh, overlay a race um, oppression, uh, kind of racist, um, perhaps uh, leading to slavery and uh, what happened with uh, uh, African Americans, then maybe it's not that the most upsetting thing would be that he was a replicant, but that if he wasn't. In other words, if you had inter- Well, then he, yeah, he's like Thomas breeding. Jefferson and she's like Sally Hemings or something, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, because for for Robin Wright, it, it, you know, because she's obviously very um, central in sort of the alerting to how significant this is. I mean, you know, would it be worse if replicants could reproduce, which, you know, in a sense is you could argue one machine uh, making another, but once you start mixing the species, then you start saying, well, hang on, this has got profound implications for what it is to be human uh, and what it would be to be human right. moving forward in a way that maybe is even more challenging to the status quo um, because she's quite apocalyptic in her um, assertions as to the significance of a child if a child exists and, and what yeah, it would bring. It brings the world, she says, right? Yeah, which I wonder, does that resonate with us if it's just that the replicants have reproduced? Although, of course, that is what we're getting from um, Wallace's character, um, you know, when he's doing his creepy um, redemption for being in Suicide Squad. Uh, <laughs> when he's doing that stuff, we really get that sense that that is what he's talking about, you know, the need for thousands and hundreds of thousands of, um, of replicants. But but I just, I just know, I feel like the Robin Wright, um, Lieutenant, uh, what is it, uh, Joshi or whatever her name is, um, Yoshi, uh, is that's the really kind of um, underpinning of the perhaps, well, that and the, the society that um, meets Kay to uh, tell him, again, spoiler alert, that he isn't the one. But also, you know, Robin, uh, uh, Madam, which is what she's called most of the time in the movie, yeah. um, is she comes on to him as well, you know, to Kay, which is sort of, is that like a mirrored allusion to, to Deckard and Rachel, or is it just that she thinks she can do whatever she wants because she feels superior to a replicant? I certainly read that more as um sort of a inverse sexual politics, uh, you know, yeah. like, um, then I did a, a overt reference to the idea of the uh, interspecies breeding. But, um, you know, I, I think she has such a, an assertive, uh, prototypical male police chief role, albeit played by a woman, that that's what makes that um, sort of an in-character for a caricature of a male yeah. uh, lieutenant cop, as it were. Um, I, I mean, I, I think... Matt's earlier points or, or yours was really good about how slow this is, right? And just how like interestingly uh, slow it is and how that is sort of the journey is the reward. Because I mean, it is a very long film in some respects. Um, yeah, I'm glad yeah, they kept yeah, the, uh, I'm glad they kept the pacing though and didn't try to like, you know, modernize it, which happens quite frequently in these types of scenarios. 
Well, I think there's two, like in, in both the original and in this film, there is, I, cause I think you were talking too about the original scene it with Lucas, right? Like that it, it was, it would be really short if they cut that down to today's pacing. Is that what you were saying before? Jason? Yeah. I mean, there's scenes like when Rachel comes to Deckard's apartment where they're, they're saying almost nothing and they're looking at each other. Like they're just cutting back and forth between them walking in and out of shadows. Like if you want to break it, if you, which I love, I'm not, I'm not. I'm just saying, but if you broke it down into like what's happening in the scene, there's literally like almost nothing happening in the scene. It'd be interesting to know how many pages the actual script was, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because obviously yeah. it's not dialogue intensive. It's, hard, it's hardly was, a Sorkin. But the uh, pacing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's totally true. I always kind of thought the, too, though, that the original Blade Runner, like it really borrows a lot from, you know, 1930s and 40s uh, film noir in oh, terms of for the way sure. that, certainly the way that it's lit and structured and sort of, you know, the, the whole Absolutely. nature of the character he's in anti-hero he's very um you know he's not really a super likable character he's like philip marlowe kind of character totally. you know yeah exactly and like and i think that you know there is that element in the second film too in 2049 where it does still have a bit of that kind of police procedural kind of um and certainly it's lit and shot yeah. in a very kind of noir-esque fashion but it sort of has a, a slightly different veneer or a slightly different flavor to in that, you know, they use this event as a plot device, this event of this blackout yeah. to kind of, um, to kind of shift gears a little bit in, uh, in the world and the, and the way we understand the world from the original movie. Yeah. And it's really kind of an opportunity too, I think for somebody who, you know, like my students, right. Who many of whom, uh, you know, uh, I, I shame them, but, you know, it's kind of ridiculous because it's kind of irrelevant to shame people who haven't seen Blade Runner, like, just because they're not of that generation. But, you know, we joke about that stuff in class all the time. But it's one of those things where, you know, they haven't seen the original film necessarily. Some some have, but most I don't think have. And they can go and see this movie and have a totally different kind of um, exposure and experience. And I think, you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting to hear... Um, and I haven't yet, but it'd be interesting to hear people's take on this movie who really don't have any, um, background with the original Blade Runner. Like, does it function? Does it work? Like, does it make sense? Like, is it a story that you feel engaged in? Is it a story that you follow? You know, I think, uh, I think given the, the on-screen copy at the beginning and the fact that they bring back the Deckard, Rachel Voigt comp stuff, uh, which I loved, mm -hmm. um, I think that they give you enough con like so I told my my wife came with us with Lucas and I to see the see 2049 and I she'd seen Blade Runner maybe you know years ago so I so Lucas and I gave her the primer of like oh by the way this is what happened <laughs> in Blade Runner so you can be caught up and when we left she's like you didn't have to tell me anything I would have completely gotten it if you if I didn't know anything about Blade Runner. So oh, that's cool. I think they did a successful job. But you know what I thought seeing it the second time, I kinda had this feeling the first time. But the second time, the it it to me it, it definitely borrows or nods to another maybe not well known, but to me one of my favorite sci fi movies and possibly one of my favorite George Lucas movies, which is THX eleven thirty eight. I mean that that whole uh, interlinked, you know, baseline uh, within cells and that whole thing and that, yeah, that yeah. whole thing. I mean, that was straight out of THX to me. For me, like that. That's not a. That's not a Blade Runner type scenario for it just because it's so fast and so kind of like 
thing. Like there's, there was a lot of stuff in here that felt THXy to me. Not again in in a in the sci-fi world, not in well, a yeah, ripoff or, or, or Orwellian, right? Like yeah. in the sense that THX is really just 1984. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's cool. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't made that connection. And I read a, I read a whole really uh, a, a whole article about. Um, the pale fire, Nabokov's pale fire that she, that Joy points out in the, in the, in the things. Oh, don't you want to read? And she grabs the book and he's like, you don't read that book. You know, uh, I have not read that book, but the person who read the article clearly had, and they pointed out that all of that baseline stuff, and there's a lot of stuff in the plot that actually is directly out of pale fire. Hmm. Um, including the, the poet, the, there's a poem in the, in Pale Fire, that is basically the baseline test. It's the lines from the baseline test in a in a sort of. And if you think about it, the way he's repeating it, it's almost like a poem. You know, it's just very dryly delivered. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, the thing that I also wanted to touch on is to get back to the thing about the cinematography and, and oh, yeah. art direction. Because one of the things that I really liked in this film is the fact that we didn't walk down the same, while it was revolutionary at the time, the same original Blade Runner, just the wet um, Chinese-American um, high-tech sort of uh, thing that that the the San Diego, I think it is, uh, but, you know, the sort of the desert yeah. areas, the, um, the deserty kind of, bleached um, orange wastelands were both visually magnificent. I mean, just startling imagery. But also I just felt like it it um, it didn't try to just play the same jokes with a slightly different uh, beat as is often the case with sequels. And so some of those were their, its own, you know, language. It was sort of developing um, afresh and uh, in the same sort of canon, I guess, but, but visually fresh. And I really appreciated that. I'm glad we didn't sort of just see the same sets effectively in the same buildings, but all done now with CG. Well, also by having the orangey sand, you know, blasted Las Vegas, they they only make one reference to it. You know, they talk about the dirty bomb and levels of radiation in Las Vegas, and that's all you know about it, right? So. Um, they do yeah. a, they they do a good job of giving you just some mo- you know minor reference of of the um, <clears throat> of why that environment looks different. Um, I agree about the you know there there are some nods right like so Mackenzie Davis is clearly modeling the Pris character in some fashion you know what I mean mm-hmm. and um, and the it's like if you took Blade Runner, and you know, obviously there's a 30 year difference and a 35 real year difference, which is interesting that you know, like Harrison Ford actually aged almost the same, the right amount <laughs> of real time. Yeah. Uh, it's like boyhood, but for sci-fi, you know. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, I think they they did a really good job of taking the Blade Runner sort of. Uh, uh, palette and expanding it into this like oh so in Blade Runner you're seeing him walk down the street let's let us give you an aerial view of the fact that that's every street right so right, like when he right. comes in and you just see all these like I don't know if you guys I've I've done a you know number of helicopter shoots in New York mm-hmm. uh, and being over Manhattan at night and looking down into the canyon of Times Square that's literally exactly what it looks like. 
Like it's mm-hmm. kind of dark and around, and you have this huge neon, just like blast and 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 parallel, you know, billboards that are facing each other, you know, from the sky. That's exactly what it looks like, and and even you know, being in the in the helicopter with my brother while we were doing it, I, I said, look over my shoulder because I was sitting like legs out of the chopper and i was like look over my shoulder and he's like oh shit it looks like blade runner you know what i mean like it's it's literally that and so i thought it was really great as a good visual sort of uh point of view when he flies in in the beginning after uh after the opening like uh scene with dave batista I thought it was it was really nice to show the sort of macro and micro versions of okay you're going to be down in there but this is where you are and then you got to see that big wall by the ocean which you have no reason why I no understanding why the ocean would have to be held back but you know um I think yeah in terms of in terms of world building I think the kinds of things that they do in those first you know 15 minutes of the movie where you know the opening shot is it mirrors if i'm not mistaken it mirrors the opening shot of the original film right it's a close up of an eye yeah right and um you know the 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 solar furnaces that they fly over like when he's sort of out on the outskirts and then coming into the city mm-hmm. you start to see um the development and the greater sort of sense of condensed population and also rain. to yeah, and the the rain and then snow too, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought too the um, mm. that opening Dave Dave Batista scene is if you've ever read the original screenplay for Blade Runner, or I have a, a old book that I bought when, which is so weird that I, as a kid, I saw this movie, I saw the original Blade Runner when I was like. 12 years old, I think in the theater, which when you think about like what's going on in that movie, like, you know, I'm like a Terrison Ford, I got to go see it. Yeah. You know, and as a kid and it's like, it's super violent. It's really dark. And I had the Marvel comic book. I wound up buying the Blade Runner sketchbook, I think, which has all the Ridley Scott and some other artist storyboards. And it has the Hampton Fancher, um, David Peebles, uh, screenplay and the opening sequence in the film, um, the original Blade Runner is that Dave Batista scene really oh. in essence, like he lands at a place where there's a tree that's being held up by these, um, you know, cables and stuff. And mm. he comes to retire a replicant. And the only way that you know that it, you know, it's this really violent opening scene in the original screenplay and it's all boarded out. It's actually really interesting to see it's in the, um, there's a, a popular textbook that's called, um, film directing shot by shot. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's like hmm. blue on the cover, but it's a, I can't remember the author's name offhand now, but um, that sequence is actually in the, the book and they talk about how it's this incredibly violent opening um, to the film. The spinner lands outside, just like in the, the new movie. And he walks in, he has this shootout and he kills this replicant, the Rick Deckard character in the original. And um, the only way that you know that, you know, what's happened is actually something different is he pulls the jawbone out of the corpse of the guy he kills and there's a serial number that you can read on it. So they, they, I don't know that, I don't think they even shot that scene. They cut it from the, um, the shooting script, but, uh, they actually, when I saw the opening scene with the Dave Batista thing, I'm like, Oh, it's, it's kind of the same scene. It almost looks that's, like the storyboards, which is really that's cool. awesome. So, uh, I like this film a lot, obviously for the reasons we've discussed and, and two, we haven't really discussed enough. So the first one is the cinematography, which I really want to just not lose sight of. Oh, yeah. Because um, I've just, you know, been desperate to hear, Jason, your opinion on uh, 
on whether we will finally see the uh, long overdue um, Academy Award going to uh, to uh, the most deserving and underrated uh, sort of uh, cinematographer of our uh, well under awarded certainly not underrated yeah but, okay I mean, that's what I meant under awarded is what I meant yeah to say. I mean I think I don't I don't know Deacons I think at this point he probably doesn't care but there's a there's just like kind of a like enough already like what. Like, you know, Scorsese won an Oscar for uh, um, The Departed, which is clearly not his best movie. But at that point, it becomes a Lifetime Achievement Award. They're like, all right, all right, we yeah. forgot we didn't give it to you for Goodfellas and Casino and all this, you know, all this other stuff. So we'll give it to you now. But it's for the other stuff. And that's what's going to hopefully happen here. Because really, outside does that mean you of this. you don't think this is his best work? You don't think this is oh, his no, best work? Oh, no, it is. I mean, are you, you saying no, that? No, I mean, I think it, okay. it is. I think it is some of his best work. And I've watched some interviews with him where he, like, sort of nervously, laughingly says, like, this is really, this was, movie was insanely complicated. Like, basically, like, yeah. I, I, you know, they were running six stages at once at some point, you know. Uh, but I think this, I think, you know, at this point with this movie, as an outsider, you would say, like, or Deacons would say, like, what else can I shoot? What else can I do to like please you people? Have you been list? Have you only been listening to my movies? You don't think, it, you don't you know think it'll like, just wind up going to some like all an- fully animated movie? Oh and god, oh god! I mean, it, it's, it's like that's happened a couple times. It's no, I'm, but I mean, the movie is too. the movie is stunning. Yeah, actually, I, agree. And, I mean, I totally agree. And and actually, my only criticism is that I thought that they made some odd choices with certain locations being super bright, like Robin Wright Penn's office, hmm. to me, hmm. was way overlit. I mean, I'm not trying, you know, like, obviously I'm criticizing Tekens, right? But I'm just well, saying- it moves away from that noir tradition. It's, and it's it just a little too, lighting. yeah, it's like a little, yeah. I understand, like, maybe narratively why you would do that, but it was just so lit that you're just like, whoa. See, I thought, like, I thought, yeah, I thought he was avoiding the cliches um, by not having the sort of, you know, traditional- um, gumshoe kind of uh, oh, yeah. office lighting approach. Yeah. No, but I mean, you know, if you go, but then you go, you know, you have all this, you know, very hard noir lighting, right? And then you go to something like the 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 memory maker and you go to Vegas and you have, in Vegas, you have this, it, there is not a highlight to be found, right? It's just this soft diffused light everywhere. Well, I was... I was interested in what you were most impressed with. I've got to say one of the things I was most impressed with is just how well the lighting was handled on the final climax uh, with the uh, the sort of beach water outside the wall bit. You mean the literal the lighting- teal and orange? Like that was like, that was literally like teal water, orange had orange tail lights. Like they literally gave you the straight up teal and orange from the poster there Ugh, well or the other way around right <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's where they got the poster from but sure. um I, I don't know i felt that lighting with the light from inside the cab uh especially before it goes out in the water so much mm-hmm. um and it was just relatively simple you know like they're on the the beach effectively and you know you could argue um i guess that many films would have the resources to sort of shoot a fight at dusk or at night on a beach and you would be kind of hard pushed to make it breathtaking. And that was, I just thought so well lit um, oh, when yeah. it first started playing out and so effective. Um, I just thought, wow, that's like, 
you know, it was never like I, I was annoyed that I couldn't see much, but I saw just enough, but I didn't feel like I needed to see more and things well, they, were in and out of darkness. Yeah, I mean, they also didn't give you like searchlights on top of the wall. Exactly. Or it's like they didn't go for any anything. They just, you know, when they're, when they're, the, when the, the, We'll call them. I look. It was like a Bentley or a Cadillac. You know, when their super fancy spinner was, you know, sh- flying out yeah. over the water, like you pretty much could see nothing, right? Like it was just yeah. black, which it should be, right? There's no lights out there, but there are movies that go the other way and feel like there has to be some like crazy illumination from the car or like you know, yeah, neon or something. Um, but I, th- I think I actually really liked the lighting in the Deckard um, fight scene with Kay in the club with Elvis, like that, Mm. the way the light was like, to me, that was their most nod to like the spotlighty movie spot, moving spotlight nature of the, of the light in Blade Runner, the first one. Cause in, in the first Blade Runner, really, if you break it down and all interior light is practical, all of it. And everything else is motivated from outside and it's all moving searchlighty kind of neon, you know, pushing through slats and atmosphere and yeah. shafts of light and what have you. And I think this was the closest they were able to get to that given the, the, the nature of the spotlights and light moving over Kay's face and hands coming out of shadow. And, um, but on top of that, as we can transition into, uh, the VFX stuff, I thought the the Elvis, like the projection stuff and the way that it would come on for a word at the just the right time in the song and then cut out with the huge echo. And, you know, I, I thought that scene was really, really incredible. But, I just have to weigh in on the cinematography discussion yeah, yeah. a little bit, only in that I, I would just say that, well, I... I, I think the best sequences for me in the in cinematography wise were um both the uh the the Vegas stuff I thought mm-hmm. was amazing, but also the um I love the super over the top uh Jared Leto's like oh, office yeah. with the yeah. caustic the water. reflections on the wall. Yeah. I thought that was just ridiculous, but well, awesome. But not just on the wall, right? On the wooden walls. And we've discovered that you could be a millionaire by just having a wooden horse, right? <laughs> totally. He's just got wood yeah, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that and like the, the uh, and the it the, was the equivalent of gold uh, Trump, <coughs> right? The, re- the receptionist too that had that oh, weird little uh, sort yeah. of golden glow, kind mm-hmm. of, and then the uh, the opening, well, not the opening. Uh, what, there's a shot where it's kind of the one that you see cited a lot, but where it's Kay walking down the street, and there's like a a street sweeping machine yep. that's kind of, and that one's so original Blade Runner. But oh, with straight, snow, yeah, straight that out. It's like it's hard not to love it, but I actually was going to say that the sequence that you guys were talking about, the fight scene at the end, after the vehicles have crashed by the wall, I got to say, like, I, I never felt like that was happening outside. I felt like that whole fight scene was taking place on a soundstage. Like I never felt like I was outdoors at night. It was the, Mm. that was Hmm. the one thing that I was sort of like, this this feels, it's cool. It was a cool sequence. I love what happened in the scene. I love the, the, the ebb and flow of the water and the intensity of the water. And I mean, I thought it was a great sequence, but I really felt like we were inside. I never felt like we were outside. There was something in that. I can't put my finger on what it was, but there was something about that sequence where I was like, is it because there was no ambient light otherwise? Like nothing, like, did it feel like just like they blacked out a stage? 
I could be that. I, I, it's really hard for me to, again, it's hard to put my finger. You said there's I, no I, I guess spotlights I felt on like that it, wall or something, but like, which yeah, maybe would have made it like corny, it, but. But I felt it was good because when you expose for lights like that at night, you can't see anything beyond it. It's like, you know, when you're looking at a beach fire and you can't see beyond it because your yeah. irises are just for the fire. It just felt to me not theatrical and stagey uh, for that reason, that it would be frustratingly on a dark night, no moon type environment. No, I mean, you guys make a good case. I just, I have to be the contrarian there. Yeah, no, I think well, only I mean, it's what you felt, right? I think it's I just felt your, slightly different truth. about it. Yeah. Um, um, can I just say one other thing before we hit the visual effects? The other thing that just made me love this film to death is just on a completely personal level. Um, Joy, uh, his Kay's relationship with Joy. I mean, I I'm doing that. my entire PhD on virtual yeah. humans and the role yeah, of yeah. Uh, avatars and agents. And there was so much richness in that relationship between Kay and Joy. Um, now, I know that there's lots of conspiracy theory things about her wanting to call him Joe and that ties in with biblical references of Joseph and all that kind of stuff. But that wasn't it for me. It was just the notion of what your relationship would be if you had a joy, if you had like a virtual mm -hmm. assistant person that was that real, um, you know, what would your relationship be to them? And, well, it's and of so course, much like her, right? Like the Spike Jones film, Her, I think in a lot of ways. that the, Yeah, yeah. But without but with but kind it, of interesting like sort of self-referential tones to the replicants. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, like, what is your – is it reasonable to crush a device that deletes a digital character? And were we upset because we lost Joy in that instant or were we upset because Joy brought happiness to Kay? In other words, when, when, when Joy was snuffed out because, you know, she was crushed underfoot, were you feeling bad for Joy or for Kay at that point? I mean, I think, I think both. But, I, but, I mean, they telegraph it pretty much she, when she says – if you put me on there, I'm not going to be able to come back. You know that 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 they're telling yeah, you she's sure. going to die, right? So you're saying that they're building, but they're building the empathy lost, towards that, I think. Okay, but are you upset that you've lost Joy, a digital avatar that exists by some kind of light beam, or are you worried for Kay, a digital virtual human that's virtual but in robotic form? I mean, I felt I felt bad for both personally. You know what I mean? Like interestingly, I, I sort I of felt bad she, for Kay more than I did for Joy. Well, she, you know, she was like a Pinocchio kind of thing, right? She just wanted to be real. Mm. He wants, he thought he was real because he thought he was the real boy, you know, you know, the, the messianic, you know, almost, you know, figure. Um, so I think they're, they're similar. They're actually the same type of person but can i say about my favorite thing about joy is the way they handled her transparency with light oh my mm -hmm. god I, I every time i was just a, like my mouth was open every time she stood in front of anything that had any like light transmission of any kind you could see it through her and it was just like the fact that they thought about it at that level and didn't just make it like, oh, well, she's a projection and in the future projections are solid. You know what I mean? And the, and the, the sort of handmade tale prostitute surrogate thing was yeah. incredibly interesting. I mean, it was I incredibly that. interesting at a conceptual level um, and it was terribly interesting in the plot in that this character, the prostitute, would actually be part of the resistance as it were, but it was also incredibly interesting in terms of the visual effects as they move between the two faces. Yeah. Um, beautifully executed, but 
it could have been cheesy, could have been even kind of tacky. I didn't find it at all. I found it just super, super interesting. Yeah. I think right down to, you know, sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say, and also to Matt's or, or to your point, it, they do the same thing in her, right? When she they hire the surrogate uh, prostitute to come over um, as he listens to her, the OS's voice but is with the girl. You know, it's a similar type scene. Um, but I was... I when was, she moves through him, they're, they're at the file, you know, they're looking at the files and she kind of moves the other side of him mm-hmm. by going through him. I mean, it was it was elegantly handled by the visual effects team, I thought, uh, and just made that character sort of I don't know way more than she could have been in the lesser hands. I felt I felt really just I could spend a lot more time on screen with with Kay and Joy, um, yeah, and, and not I want them as happy couples, but they're because you know we we often talk about being a computer user and being a user, and one of the things that we're exploring with my research and stuff is saying is that a good concept when you've got a Joy. Uh, you a user of her, and what does it say about you? How you treat her, right? Um, and you know she's not real because she's like this projected light display thing. Um, but what does it say about one's humanity? How one treats one's virtual assistant, and of course, all of this is happening by somebody that we know in K is themselves a replicant, um, right? And so you know, and yet, of course, for the audience's point of view, it's harder to remember that Ryan Gosling's character is synthetic than it is to remember Joy's character synthetic because of the visual effects and the nature of the uh, projected imagery. And so, I mean, just um, without being like sort of, dare I say it, um, kind of wanky and, and self-referential of its own, you know, sort of uh, existential existence, I felt that just was a fascinating real gem in this film that was, as I say, not just replaying a joke from the first film in, to use that uh, analogy when comedic uh, sequels just replay the same gag like we saw in maybe Guardians. Um, you know, like it really was just fascinating, more thought-provoking stuff in an age when we have a, a deeper kind of perception into those um, those virtual human uh, synthetic uh, presence. Well, I mean... And they're, the way that they treated, like, tell me if I'm wrong, but like... So when Kay would, when they were in the snow and he would put his hand out to touch the snow, my my inference from that is that the snow doesn't melt on his hands because he's not warm-blooded. Is it, I mean, that's sort of how I interpreted it because he kept trying to feel the snow, but it didn't look like the snow was melting on his hand to me. And yeah, maybe that was yeah, something was I was inferring. No, but, no, no. I was, I was playing with that myself in, in what they were doing with that snow stuff. And, and I almost then, mentioned the snow before when Matt was talking about scenes he really liked because yeah. I thought that was really nice as well. And then, and also technically he doesn't really get cold really. Um, but, you know, the, um, also, so then when, when Joy finally gets transferred to the stick or the uh, em, emulator or, or whatever they called yep. it, and he takes her outside and the way that the light was the the way the rain was falling through her and the way that at, at for brief moments the water would stick to her skin um but my favorite two favorite parts of that scene are there's a ship that comes by in the background and the light hits her and she disappears like almost disappears as the the sha- as the headlight or the whatever the big light passes through her because hmm. it completely interrupts whatever projection is happening. Cause it's just light on light. So yeah, that I thought was like 
my mind was like, oh my God, thank you so much for like somebody thinking <laughs> of that. But also when he goes to kiss her and she pauses and it's like, oh, voicemail, bling, bling. Like I would, again, I was also like, thank God, some, thank you, <laughs> somebody, art director, production designer, script writer, whoever came up with that stuff. Cause all that little stuff when he like turned her off and you get the little Wallace kind of bling, kind of turn off you know, boot down yeah. thing. Like it just made everything feel so right. Uh, I read somewhere that her music was uh, from Peter and the Wolf and that there was yep. like this whole kind yeah. of, because there's all these, um, as I'm sure you guys know, like tons and tons of either spoilers, coincidences or people reading things into things that uh, maybe weren't there. I mean, my favorite being that the all the wooden animals in Deckard's home spell out Rachel's name because rhinoceros, antelope, cat, horse, antelope, Elephant lion, uh, right? <laughs> well, I read something and, also that about the um, uh, KD. Uh, the um, uh, there was some reference to um, Philip being the word Philip means something in reference to uh, K, and that KD is for K Dick, you know, and that he, you know, that <laughs> was his thing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, I took the Joe thing to be like more of just, just straight up, like, like Matt was saying, like thirties, you know, Palooka kind of names from a noir movie. Hey Joe, you know, like Joe is just, that's that name, you know? And then when she says, when she's the big giant projection later, uh, which I also loved, um, that she, when she says, you're a good Joe and he's like, Oh, right. Great. Fuck. You know, I actually thought, you know, that big projection that he runs into after she's gone, it made me actually feel like I think what to what you were alluding to earlier, Mike, it made me feel more sympathy for his loss than her loss in that, like, it really accentuated the nature of her sort of programmatic personality that like she wasn't, it, it made me question whether or not like, because she, she is still kind of this like idealized version of woman, you know, in that context yep. when she's sort of the large projection and she still seemed like, you know, in some very removed way, she didn't have the memories or the experience and she hadn't sort of, you know, learned his, <laughs> you know, voice recognition or whatever, like how you can train your virtual assistant on your personal device or whatever. Like she, she didn't know him anymore, but it was, they kept referring to her. Do you like our product? You know, like the, um, the other replicant uh, woman that was sort of off hunting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's very, um, it's very interesting, like exploring that stuff. But, but if we, if we can keep going towards the visual effects, we kind of started it with, with joy. And of course, Matt, I'm very keen uh, to hear what you think of uh, Rachel 2.0. Well, I, I have to say, I, I haven't read anything about how she was created, but like, I mean, when she comes out and you see her uh, in uh, whatever his name is, Jared Leto's uh, office, Wallace's office, I guess, um, when she comes out and she's revealed, when you know you hear her coming before she shows up, like you can hear the her her high heels on the the wooden floor, and when you do finally see her, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, when I saw it in the theater, I was just like, wow, that's that's awesome. Like it really looks exactly. Like it's her. It, it looks exactly like her. Like it was a great. Um, I don't know if it was a. Uh, I mean, a digital double. I guess right. Like because it's 
it's not well that's shiny. interesting now yeah. i'm gonna don't, I, i'm not gonna answer that until i get uh and can get jason's opinion what did you think of rachel 2.0 um, I thought there were, when she first comes out, like obviously they play the joke, not the joke, but the gag, you know, first in silhouette for the people who would get it, Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. In shadow from behind and you're like, oh shit, that's, you know, it's a very specific shape. Uh, and then they play the, you know, the reveal for everybody else. Um, I thought there were moments where her face gets a little weird. Uh, to me, and I couldn't I think, tell. I, I, I couldn't tell put, if it was a real person that they were augmenting, that's or if I it was a fully tell. digital person. I thought it totally put Tarkin and Leia, uh, like to bed. Though, like I, I didn't feel like it. I felt like it, whatever they did for this, in at least in my one viewing, I thought it was superior to what I saw in the the Tarkin and Leia in Rogue. See, one. I thought Tarkin might have been slightly better but i knew he was digital so maybe that's the catch right like obviously i know he's dead i i know they didn't bring sean young back for this although they should have and just done a little well, they did bring it back but did okay. they okay well so they, there you go well but 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 not as you think but yeah yeah, yeah. um but there there was some moments in her mouth work um I think it was towards the end of that sequence because I sort of noticed it more the second time, where I felt like she. Do you mean, where do you mean th- the the lip sync? Like, is that it wasn't a lip sync thing? It was just or? the way that the lips moved because they're so hard at you know it's a, so it's such a specific fifties kind of you know her mouth and her lips. Well, she's and like the way a, she looks like a mannequin almost. Right? Yeah, like, like there's, there was just the something and- about the way her mouth moved just a little bit when she said something. I think she said like, oh, you know, don't you want me to be blah, 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 or whatever the line is. I thought the eyes were the best part, honestly, because that's obviously where things fall apart. Uh, I thought I was was totally engaged in the eyes. And that's what made me think like they were mixing, you know, some Sean Young features with a a human, with a a actual actress. Um, So... Okay, so a couple of things. Firstly, I, I think if, from my point of view, if anyone had seen that film and wasn't in visual effects, they just wouldn't have said that was a digital character. Like I think oh, for sure. she comes on screen, she just doesn't look like a digital character. <clears throat> so I think that you're right that she, um, you know, had really uh, astounding results. Um, the other thing I'd say is we've got the same turf that we covered when we were discussing the Terminator film in the sense that whichever one it was, where you've got a, an actor playing a robot uh, being done by a digital crew that has to make the digital version look like an actor a playing a robot. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. like she wasn't meant to be giving a Princess Leia performance where Princess Leia is a emotional, warm character that has yeah, a to-die-for smile that the audience mm-hmm. empathises with and loves to, you know, enormously because... That wasn't Rachel in the first film. Like she wasn't cutesy and warm and, right. you know, whatever. So that that is a real sort of meta problem for the guys. Um, I'm going to tell you what I think has happened, but I totally don't have this under NDA and I totally don't have this uh, down, so I could be wrong. My apologies to the visual effects artists if I get this wrong. From what I can piece together, this was an MPC shot 
Um, MPC did the original Schwarzenegger uh, and MPC certainly are credited on this. Uh, what I'm not sure on is who did the scanning uh, that went into the basis of this because in the film credits for the film, uh, Dimensional Imaging um, has got uh, a credit for facial motion capture but so has ICT uh, USC and Paul DeBevic and um, Hal Lee are both credited, I'm pretty sure, on the end credits when I saw this. And both Dimensional Imaging and ICT may have done work but I... I'm guessing now, just total guess, that Dimensioning didn't do Rachel. They did um, other facial capture stuff, uh, but I could be wrong, and that uh, ICT did the base capture for um, for Rachel. They then got an actress, uh, Lauren Peter, to come and act out the scene, but um, Sean Young was involved in giving, like she was there to basically provide a huge amount of uh, input to the actress. But it's neither of their voices. You're actually hearing a um, a sound alike that does the Rachel sound dubbing double, which then gets digitally treated to make it sound as close as they can to the original uh, Rachel from the from the film from forty odd odd years ago. Um, and according to um, IMDb now, apparently the director limited the number of shots so they could give the visual effects house, which I think, as I say, is MPC, a full year to work on the Rachel stuff because he didn't want it rushed and he didn't want it falling into what he thought was the um, area that was criticised for for Carrie Fisher's or Peter Crushing's Rogue One um, uh, work. So he thinks it's great. He thinks the director thinks it's mesmerising, according to the article. Um but he gave them like a ton of time to get it as good as they possibly uh, could get it. But all of the visual effects on this film are under uh, embargo. That we, as we're recording this, we're not allowed to have the interviews to let us unearth what's going on there. So I'll be interested to know when I do get time to talk to these people if um, if I've guessed that correctly. But from what I can understand, you've got a body double doing the actions, gets replaced by a digital actress based off scans, based off... Um, digital work and then um, placed into the scene. And I think it's a render man uh, render using the new um, RSI uh, subsurface. But a lot of that is just uh, straight guesses. I mean, in this case... Oh, go ahead. Go on. No, I was going to say, for me, I actually found that Tarkin was more successful than this because I know Sean Young's face really well and I didn't feel like I knew... Like Tarkin for me was an easier sell because I wasn't as familiar with the actor's face, uh, whereas um, both Carrie Fisher and Sean Young's face, I feel like I really know them well. And so I didn't think that, I, th- I would sort of rate them for me as an, as an audience member that Tarkin was most effective, then Rachel, then um, Leia. Um, in Leia's case, I think the proportions of the face were wrong and there was something wrong for me in the look of this Sean Young or this Rachel, uh, but I didn't have enough sort of history uh, with Crushings to say that the Peter Crushings wasn't sort of Tarkin, if you know what I mean. Like, so again, if you came at it, you didn't know the actors involved, didn't know Carrie Fisher, didn't know Young, et cetera, then I would have thought this is the most successful digital human. But as they are replacing people we know, the least I know the actor, the more successful they're likely to be, in my opinion. I mean, you also have the sort of leeway of you know you know specifically that that character is a fabricated character by the Wallace character. So even if it's not exactly the same, you have that yes. plot leeway to be like, well, he made it as close as he could. I mean, obviously he doesn't have, he, like, where did he the, get the pictures mold. of her? <laughs> yeah, like, where did he, yeah. f- where, how did he figure out what she looked like? You know what I mean, like, nobody even, you don't even get to that, you know, it, oh, it's, 
probably because he owns Terrell's archives. Right. So, um, but you know, I, 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 in my mind while I was examining her, because as soon as, as soon as you hear, you see her shape, you're like, okay, as a VFX person, you're like, okay, I know what's coming. I'm going to pay attention because they're clearly playing that character. Um, but again, from a plot perspective, I think you had the you had the leeway for it to not be one million percent perfect, and actually, maybe it shouldn't have been, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I've got to say, also, if you're worried about actors being replaced by digital doubles, like the expense of those few oh, yeah. seconds of on-screen time <laughs> yeah. would make you feel pretty comfortable that actors aren't going to be holeless bowlers replaced by uh, digital doubles. Well, um, for and now. I'd actually, I'd, I'd even, yeah, true. I'd actually also say that the Fast and the Furious for me is still kind of my um, go-to example of because there were so many shots in that uh, and so few of them people were picking. Um, of Paul Walker. Yeah, yeah, and so I think Weta's work there was um, was standout. I think, like, I think it's a it's a really interesting challenge facing MPC, Weta and ILM because they're the three houses that are really trying to to pull this off. And um, and in the case of the original s- example I gave of Schwarzenegger when they brought him back for one of the uh, the sequels, my problem there actually was the grade. They actually graded it differently in a kind of modern way and that didn't make the character look. I actually regraded it from the... Um, I sampled it from the you know DVD, whatever it was, the online, and then I regraded it back to the grading of the original Terminator films, and it actually looked like a better match to me. So they had that going for them here as well, and that the grade on Rachel was in a totally appropriate grade yeah. for yeah. the scene for and Rachel. No hard lighting. Yeah. No. Yeah. So she was falling back into the uh, the same area. I, so I think Mike, though, I'm that, just I'm just curious, Mike. Like you, you. Uh, you don't include in that sort of dis- the the list of those companies. You don't include Lola because what Lola does is so different, right? It's not a fully digital three D human. Is that why they're excluded from that kind of discussion of sort of a, a digital performance or a digital human? Like because they're doing something that's it's it's an augmented performance. Is that am I? Yeah, I mean, Lola is doing a comp solution. These are all 3D solutions. So these okay. 3D solutions can have the character do anything they want. Lola, okay. who I've, you know, said before, I you drink their bath drink water. Drink their bath like water, the yeah. Compos- <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> if you've, you know, got an actor that you're trying to de-age, um, yeah. then there's just no one better in the so world. So it's just a different, it's a different problem. It's a different, it was just a interesting process, why you yeah. wouldn't bring Sean Young in and de-age her was my question. That's a great question, actually. I mean, it's it's a really great question, and because um, then you're like ninety nine percent there, really. Because it's like the yeah, last one yeah. percent is always the hardest. So, I mean, I, it, that is a really good question, and honestly, I guess. Well, let me ask you, Matt. You're the VHFX supervisor, and you're in the meeting, and one one person on one side of the table, being me, says, um, uh, "We're going to do three D Rachel," and you know. Jason on the other side of the table says, no, no, let's get Lola to de-age it. Which way are you going? I mean, right now, like if it were me, if I got to make that decision, I, I probably would yeah. take, J- I would go with Jason's solution only in that like, I, <laughs> but I mean, it, part of it is, is a, a, would be a technical solution. I mean, I guess if I was the supervisor, it would have to be a purely technical solution, but I think it would be probably in the long run uh, less expensive and, potentially more successful, although it would depend on, um, I, I haven't seen Sean Young in, you know, 
a decade or more. I can't remember the last time I saw what, you know, I, I don't know what she, I mean, it's sort of one of those things where like, you know, there's the potential of it being something that's doable and, and maybe there's the potential too for it to be something that would be overly onerous. I think there's a, there's a piece of information there that you'd need to have that, I mean, in, to make an informed decision. I mean, I only say that because you, Mike had intimated that she was indeed on set and part of the performance coaching. So it's like you have the person that, that's there. That's what I understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just going with that yeah. line of thinking, assuming that it's correct, yeah. that if you literally have the person you're doubling there to say to the another person, hey, this is how I would do it because I can't, for whatever reason, do it. Like it seems counterintuitive to me. I I don't know the spe- the specifics the, the and the reasons is, under which they made their decisions. I'm just saying, yeah. given that information, I would be like, well, but but we have her right here. Well, and as I mean? a fully digital double, at least the performance that she had to deliver required very little uh, yeah. movement. You know, it wasn't like. Uh, it, 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 was, it wasn't, wasn't like she like had Jackie to like, Chan. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there was no action really, you know. Like she was really pretty stilted until she was at a distance, uh, you know, dispensed with, I guess, right. The the actual actress is fifty seven years old, and um, in the same way that Harrison Ford looks pretty weathered, um, while she's obviously still an attractive woman, she has quite a distinctly different facial shape. I've looked it up while we're talking. Right. Oh, okay. So where you've got this kind of uh, more V-type profile around from the ears to the jaw, it's not a V, it's obviously a, a U-shape, but you know what I mean? Like it's kind of a chisel. Mm-hmm. And, a, and um, th- that has become a, a, a from a V to a U, if you know what I mean? Like it's become yeah. a broader yeah, uh, yeah. around the jowls. And and that's what obviously gravity and time does to all of us. But she's sure. also obviously not razor thin like she was back then. Um, I imagine that at some point you would almost be like, we're going to have to um, do so much work. So because, much replacement, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess it becomes well, like a skinny Steve Lola, thing at right? that point, right? Well, but even more, that that's, I mean, 40 years is, uh, how, how many years is it in the film? In that 35. Life, sorry, is it 40? 35. Okay, because like that's about the edge of the jump. The biggest jump we've had in de-aging um, is in the last uh, Guardians film. Yeah. Um, which was spectacular. But uh, it's a hard ask. There they, uh, I mean, they could do it here, I guess. They, they would have had to put a wig on the current um, actress and left that hair and then done underneath. But nevertheless, you know, you've then got the body shape and everything else as well. And again, she's no yeah. longer. No, that's as, true. So it's it's probably if it had been like 10 15 years I reckon you'd have gone that way but at this point you're on the edge of yeah of doable um yeah it'd be hard to DH Harrison Ford at this point too I think <laughs> you know although you know well, I was looking up his age he was was pretty impressive he was 40 when he did Blade Runner yeah like that's yeah. crazy you don't think of him as being 40 in 1982 yeah, I mean, obviously the guy's 75 now, right? So, but the it's just, he just doesn't, and maybe it's just as a kid, you know, like Indiana Jones, he was 38. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you don't I mean, think of I him think as 38, I guess, you know? I guess, yeah, it's, I just, <laughs> I'm just trying to be a little, uh, uh, 
politic here, I guess. Like, in, oh no, I, I get what you're saying. Ge- genetically, I'm, like different different people, just based yeah. on their genes, are going to age differently too. No, of course, like, that's part no, of, of it. Of course, I you know, yeah. uh, I, based on what Mike's saying now, I I had not looked up Sean Young and whatever, and knowing, me neither, you know, yeah, and, and also there is you know there is a there is a politics to you know like the manipulation of a female character you know, and all that kind of stuff that would come into it. And maybe rightly so, you know, like, oh, well, we had to make her thinner and we had to make her younger and we had to make her do all these things, you know, instead of just doing it digitally, um, there very, very well may be politics involved in that. And again, as maybe there should be. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would only just say this, like, uh, the young Kurt Russell with the Ferris Fawcett hair that we saw in Guardians at the beginning was pretty remarkable for de-aging. Um, right, and but, he, so, but from a political standpoint, he's a man and people don't look at it the same. If I'm going to really, if we're going to just take that rat hole for a second, you know, yeah, you can... You I'm, can I'm, I'm willing to give the visual effects supervisors and stuff on this film credit that they weren't doing this on the basis of oh, being no, sexist. I wasn't. No, I wasn't either. I, I'm not either. I'm, I'm just making a larger a larger observation right. of of what the outward discussion of the film would then become in today's right. in today's dis- discussable marketplace uh you know. I guess that's all I was saying is that, is yeah. that in, you know on some level like you know I don't want to be sort of impolitic and suggest that like you know Sean Young you know <laughs> Just I'll just say it like Sean Young is aged so badly. Like we couldn't de-age her using you know Lola style techniques. Like you know I I don't want to say that. Like only in that I think that that's not one. I don't know. I you know I haven't looked to see what she looks like. But I think you would base the decisions not on like it wouldn't be based on gender or based on ethnicity or any of those things. It would just be based on like the individual actor, male or female, and whether or not you felt like you know the using the original actor and their performance would be the most cost effective and most successful way to achieve the effect you're looking for. And if in the long run, the better result is going to be yielded through a fully digital 3d character uh, with some kind of coaching on set or whatever, you know, then that's going to be a better solution. Like, and so it just depends on what the script is asking for too, in that instance, you know, I think we also have sort of argued our points into arriving at the same yeah, solution yeah, they did I agree. basically yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i took us down a weird wonder, like rat hole there yeah but i also wonder if there isn't a nice aspect about having a digital copy of rachel in that you know that there is a certain uh symmetry to digitally reproducing her um, right well in the plot in the, it makes sense sort of, they have the luxury yeah. Of, yeah. of that being a solid plot point as well as a so, visual effects execution. Yeah. I guess the the only thing, like, and I, we can go back to the visual effects, but the only thing about this conversation that it does bring up is the one problem, it's not a problem, but the one thing, in going to see this movie, I had certain expectations, like, based on, without really looking at a lot of trailers, and I wasn't reading about the movie, like, I tried to go in kind of just, like, with fresh eyes and see what I would see, and I did have certain thoughts about, like, oh, well, what could they do with this franchise? Like, okay, I know Harrison Ford's in the movie, but, like, what are they going to do like and so there's a whole thematic thing that goes on in the first film about like you know the four-year lifespan and these are you know this this certain replicants are different like they don't have that four-year lifespan and I thought it would have been really interesting and I still walked away with these questions with regards to Harrison Ford like what does it mean for a genetically engineered human 
who essentially is is not born, right? To then in turn age, um, and how do we think about the nature and essence of, you know, um, the age in certainly in Western culture, I know in a lot of Eastern cultures, like uh, there's a, an intense and deep respect for the elderly. And I think in Western culture, certainly in the United States anyway, like, you know, everything is geared towards the, towards youth, right? And the young. And so I thought it would have been a really interesting aspect of the movie, which is kind of what I thought we were going to see was something that had to do with, with age and the essence of like yeah. what it means to live out a life. And we didn't really go in that direction. I, I knew that there would be a kid in some way, you know, which, uh, I thought the final reveal of who the kid was like, just seemed totally out of left field for me, but like, I didn't expect that or it seemed so random kind of in a strange way too. But, um, yeah, I don't know. So in terms of, you know, an older Rachel or an older Harrison Ford or a young Rachel and, or the young Rachel with the older Harrison Ford in that one scene, I think, you know, there were aspects of, um, you know, the, the longevity, you know, like the idea of, of, of a lifespan that they could have explored that they just barely sort of touched on. And I was sort of thinking we'd see more of that in the context of the movie. I, I do want to just raise one point though. We've touched on whether or not it was sexist um, over, and I, you know, I, I think we all agree there was no nature of a sexist decision in the decision-making of the visual effects team, but no, no. There, are, there are criticisms leveled at this film over the treatment and marginalization of women um, yeah. And I certainly uh, felt that the hacking at the womb of the um, of the replicant was a gratuitously violent act against a naked woman that just felt to me kind of a bit on the nose, actually. Um, I don't know what you guys thought. I mean, it speaks to Wallace's... Wallace is the opposite of Terrell, right? Like, Terrell is pure class in, in a sense. Obviously, he's also doing very similar things because, like what they say... Um, you know, about uh, what Wallace says to Deckard, like, you know, you were the perfect, you were the unicorn basically that was brought to meet Rachel. Like, did you think it was just happenstance that you met her? Like Terrell made you and then he made you meet Rachel, you know, and give her the test and do the whole thing. And you were, you were basically made to fall in love with her. And I think that Wallace's drive to, I don't, I, I didn't really get that scene per se, like when she slides out of the bag, like it's just like, oh, okay, that's that's an interesting way to show them being born. Although you could see her literally falling onto like a crash pad, you know, a uh, black crash pad. But I guess you wouldn't want your replicant to get damaged any more than you would an actor uh, uh, in the movie. But the, yeah, I mean, that scene, now that you bring it up, like I, I wasn't really sure I mean, I understand the motivation for it that like she, the, that replicant, maybe he's been trying to make replicants. I don't know how he would know that that specific replicant couldn't bear a child. I agree. Uh, I'm not, or was he just taking out his aggression about not being able to make it? Like it was a confusing scene. Um, yeah, it seems like too, it kind of, it kind of gets into like, I, it was a, I thought it was a really dark and disturbing scene. I don't know that it was one that I particularly enjoyed. I guess it did tell us something about the essence and nature of his character and his sense of the sort of immutable sort of the disposability of, um, these, these, uh, replicants that he clearly doesn't consider to be 
either human or really sentient in any way, although he does refer to them as his children. But clearly he's, you know, there's a detachment and the detachment is both accentuated through that particular scene, but also through the fact that he's, he's blind and he, you know, he's got the cataracts or whatever. And he's, he's sort of, (laughs) he sort of seems like he's like a, a somewhat damaged and broken uh, human. Although can he just make himself himself new eyes? Like, yeah. Well, Chew is not around anymore. Yeah, so that's maybe, true. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> low man. Uh, but, you know, actually, I was thinking about all the commentary that had been made about, like, in this movie, and, and, and I'm going to look at it from a from a, a modified angle. I'm not going to look at it in the choices the screenwriter or the filmmaker made, right? I'm going to look at it in terms of the, terms of the world, of that the movie exi- exists in. And so if you look at the original Blade Runner, which I would guarantee most of the people who are writing these articles did not, and you look at this current movie, 30 years in the movie world ago, women occupied a specific place. And, 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 and they say that the basically you're on earth you're in the shit and if you get off world that's where all that's where it's all happening and you can you can project that in the off world areas is where maybe more civilized advancements of gender equality and other things have have occurred or are occurring so 30 years in the future in that same shitty earth world there's no indication that that those gender inequalities or the caste system of that world has gotten better. There's no guarantee that it should get better. Therefore, the female characters aren't necessarily guaranteed equality in terms of their place, even though you have a clearly super, super high-ranked, respected female uh, police chief, and you have this uber-replicant, you know, assassin female. Um, and but you also still have your your standard pleasure models as they call Pris, and clearly uh, Mackenzie Davis's character is not a replicant because she says you don't like real girls, uh, referring to Joy. Um, although I'm assuming because she's part of the, which is a confusing line because she's part of the resistance, is that because she's a human who, or is she a replicant as well? Because yeah, of, because of what she's saying, but in my in my sort of thinking about this, I'm not sure that the that that movie world specifically, and I'm not saying this as my opinion of how I think roles in Hollywood should be uh, measured, or that uh, that there is not a gender inequality in Hollywood from a real world perspective, but in the world of this specific movie, because it's coming from a previously built universe. Does that universe owe gender equality to the characters, or do they? Does it owe a uh, extension of the original world moving yeah. forward? Yeah. Now I, I see what you're saying. That's just how I was thinking about it. You know what I mean? But I but completely the agree that there is a, that, in the world and gratuitously carving up someone's womb seems not on the well, same. Well, I know I'm not talking about that specific Cartesian scene. Plane. I, no, I, that I think specific scene, good. I agree with you. I, yeah, like it's like, yeah. why should they suddenly have... But but also, 
<laughs> just at a filmmaking level. And Wallace, well, wait, and Wallace's character does say, uh, you know, we're go, you know, in the off world where th- he alludes to it, everything being like grander and better in the off world. So I think, and again, I'm, I'm agreeing with you hundred percent that the scene of Wallace killing the female replicant is a little too heavy handed and on the nose and probably unnecessary to, to show that his character doesn't care about these creatures that he's creating. Uh, and, and it is a little gratuitous, but well, he's taking, so one-dimensional. Yeah, that character is ridiculous. Which, really, which Terrell is not. So that's the <laughs> yeah. you know, like when Terrell has his conversation with Roy. I mean, you get it, right? So, uh, I, I've got to say, there is a missed yeah. opportunity there for sure. Just, just at a, can I just take a complete <clears throat> left turn here because we're only out of time? I did want to put out one <laughs> shout out yeah, yeah. to. Uh, I did a season of Red Dwarf in the UK and. Um, when we were doing that, the whole premise of the underlying metaphor that was the basis of what we were doing was Blade Runner. So we went through with meticulous detail every shot of uh, Blade Runner and we'd like, hmm. you know, had the guys from Red Dwarf crashing through the glass and being shot at the end and the, uh, yeah. you know, like the, the, we built uh, Tyrell's Tower in the, the back of London and um, I just had a ball doing all that, right? So, uh, uh, of course, when we were doing that, there was no notion of this film coming out. It was just... Um, it was just like way on fun. But if you've never seen, if you want to see a parody of, uh, of a universe in which um, Blade Runner ex- sort of exists, um, that was like a couple of seasons ago of Red Dwarf and it was just a heap of fun doing it. And uh, <laughs> Matt Lennon, who uh, might have been on the show with us today, uh, was actually worked with me on that. And uh, shout out to Matt because he was awesome on that, uh, that project. We just had a ball doing that. And also just a great crew <laughs> and a bunch of guys. Hey, and we're running out of time. Uh, so uh, can I just get your summation on the visual effects overall? Um, leaving aside Rachel, we have in-depth discussion on that and Joy, and we've had in-depth discussion on her. But I guess the environment work is the other thing that, that I'd just like to get an opinion on. So the, the general sense, because it is such a dominant uh, feature, it sort of seared into our psyche and our popular culture, the original Blade Runner, that sort of um, Chinese reigning um, advertising gone crazy world. What did we think of the environments uh, this time? I'll start with you, Matt, like, just from a visual effects point of view. I I think the visual effects in this film are really spectacular. I even, I really like the Rachel uh, <laughs> double over that was done. I think that was really successful. I actually would put it above Tarkin. I would say it would be Rachel Tarkin. Well, maybe it'd be Rachel, maybe Rachel Tarkin, Arnold, Leia, you know, okay. <laughs> maybe if I was going to put them all in order. But, um, but I thought the visual effects in this were really spectacular. I loved, loved, loved the environment work. I think that's probably some of the best stuff in this. It really sells the world. I think the, um, all the stuff like in the original film, all the stuff with the spinners and the cityscape. I know there were some miniatures that were utilized to create some of the cityscape in this as well, just like in the original, as well as um, digital environments. I just saw a thing on that um, this evening um, before starting this show. And um, I think that stuff looked great. The one thing I, I, I think it's great that they didn't do it. But the one thing I kept thinking I was going to see was going to be what we talked about, I think, um, on our Close Encounter show was the uh, the lens flare, the spherical lens flare on the uh, vehicles. <laughs> and uh, I think it was it was nice that we didn't see that. It was a much more sort of photorealistic um, aesthetic. They weren't trying to hide anything um, in terms of how they generated those uh, flying shots. This time out, they were really just kind of showcasing what it really would look like, I think, if it were shot um, 
in the literal sense, but I thought it was, it was gorgeous. I, I'm actually really looking forward to going to see this at least one more time in, in the theater. And I've already, um, <laughs> the day after I saw it, I pre-ordered my, um, my digital, uh, release of the film. Um, just a shout out to, to, uh, one of the art directors uh, and designers on the project is an old friend, George Hull, an old colleague from ILM and ESC Entertainment. Um, I know he did a lot of work on um, this film and uh, at least all the stuff I saw that had his uh, name on it uh, was just super impressive. I, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. It's As an effects movie, I think this is, for me, this... Uh, it's it's the movie of the year from an effects standpoint. I know you know that's almost blasphemous in uh, the world of the endless uh, Star Wars movies coming out, but this was the one I was really really looking forward to, and it did not disappoint. Justin, before I get to you, I just want to give a shout out to the companies that did it because I made a note when I was seeing the film. So uh, Paul Lambert at uh, Deneg was the VFX soup of Deneg's work, and that was the. Um, the, the first house in the credits. And one of the reasons I want to mention this, and I didn't want to interrupt you when you are talking earlier, but uh, there's a special DNEG credit, if you look closely in the credits, to VFX aerial work and uh, Ryan Cook. And so I think the stuff that you were referring to earlier, the really amazing stuff looking at the environments was in fact in, in part due to Ryan Cook's work. I mean, again, I don't know that for a fact yet because we haven't had a chance to do the interviews, but um, I got that from the credits. Um, Framestore, um, Richard Hoover uh, were second up. MPC and uh, Richard Clegg were third up. Booth uh, in France uh, with Pierre Biffin was, um, was fourth up. And then we haven't mentioned them. Universal Production Partners, Rodeo, Atomic, and then some of the miniature stuff that you just mentioned uh, was, and so I think some props as well, was uh, Weta Workshop, not Weta Digital, Weta Workshop. Um, uh, but yeah, so a, a number of houses contributing and um, and we would discuss their individual work more, but just because of the nature of the studio, um, they're not doing the interviews to allow us to do that, even um, under embargo at this stage yet. Um, but Jason, uh, again, over to you on the sort of general effects environment work. Any other comments you want to make? No, I I agree with Matt. I think I think some of the most impressive stuff is the set extension or lighting rig cleanup. Like if you look at the the ASC or the Airy article about the lighting, you can see the like two hundred and fifty six light con- double concentric ring uh, lighting rig they did in Wallace's you know office water pyramid thing. Those pictures and, are so rad, <laughs> and you're just like wow because. They just completely seamlessly, and you would think that, I mean, and that probably is the more, the easiest quote unquote work in the film, but like you're removing a giant light source and of cascading light that's moving and the shot of Ryan Gosling walking into Las Vegas and there's like a million diffused, you know, like giant China ball type lights above his head. And those are all gone. You know, like, I think there's these, that, that set extension work, um, that is beautiful and really well done. Uh, but I'm still, I think my, and, and just in general, yes, the environment work, everything in general. I mean, I, I don't think anything jumped out at me. There was no physics issues. There was no, uh, you know, your typical thing of like, oh, the vehicle moved wonky here. Like everything was pretty spot on. I think the the um I still think that that um joy would be my favorite as a as an overall thing because it's as a character and a visual effect. Um 
was was pretty stunning. Um, but I also wanted to point out that I was a little disappointed that it wasn't anamorphic because that's such a huge, <laughs> you know, yeah. sign of of Jordan Cronenworth's work on the first movie. And Deacons is not an anamorphic guy, so that's obviously they're not going to force him to do that. And part of me was thinking, I of course I I Deacons did an incredible job, and he's obviously one of the greats of all time. But how amazing would it have been if they had had Jeff Cronenworth, who's obviously a fantastic cinematographer in his own right with Fight Club and and Gone Girl and other movies like that, that if he were able to, you know, like follow up his father's film, uh, I think that would have been, uh, I, and I don't know if they spoke to him or interviewed him for the job or anything. I'm just speculating on my own, my own emotional thing. You know, like if I shot a movie that became, you know, this tent, this, this groundbreaking sort of, you know, uh, piece that everyone pointed to and th- you know 35 years later my kid shot the follow-up See, that's a father's know. perspective i'm not sure that you feel as comfortable if you're julian lennon doing john lennon songs do you know what i mean um oh yeah no for sure i'm just i'm just saying because yeah. i i'm not saying i have no knowledge of jeff's you know involvement or yeah. or or anything i'm just saying uh he's clearly a qualified cinematographer oh yeah uh so I, I just thought about that, and, but I would have, it, it is, I am glad that they didn't add any anamorphic lens flares as Fincher does. Sometimes he'll shoot spherically and add anamorphic lens flares, yeah. it, which it would act, um, weirdly to Matt's point would be the inverse. Article, and I just think we just expanded on it. If people don't know what you're referring to there, like there's this um, stuff that Ari put out about the lighting and has some just hysterical facts in it. Like, I mean, the amount of gels they used. Do you remember in the article it's discussed they went through 1,400 rolls of gel uh, in shooting this film? But <laughs> can you just explain what you're talking about in terms of Wallace's uh, tungsten light ring? Because uh, you, you passed it pretty quickly and people haven't seen that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they built a double concentric ring of light in, in the dead above center in Wallace's water office. And I think they said it was 256... Uh, 300 watt Fresnels with no barn doors. So they're literally just touching each other. Yep. And so I don't know, I didn't count to see how many were in the outer ring and the inner ring. But to me, it seemed like the outer ring was hitting the water and, you know, on the very edge and bouncing it up into the wall. I'm speculating, but that seems like how they're, how they were doing it. And then the outer, the inner ring was doing this, like what they said was roughly a, a eight eight uh, unit width, eight eight light width of light that kind of dimmed and cascaded in a circle, which is why when you see like uh, Deckard and Wallace talking, and the light is coming on and off, slowly cascading on and off of uh, Deckard's face and what have you. That's how they were doing it. And uh, I forget the gaffer's name, but he was saying that the dimmer board setup for that was incredibly complex. <laughs> Yeah, and similarly Bill for the yeah, yeah, but and similarly for the replicant hallway, yeah, uh, they to make that there was all because Airy provided all the lighting, so all the lighting, the lenses, and that because it was what it was a uh, XT studio and Master Primes. I mean, it's, there are shots in this movie that are beyond clean and sharp, which is not really my cup of tea, but uh, personally for my material, but man. I've never seen a movie that's clean 
that had this much texture to it, you know, visually. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like the Alexas, the Master Primes, the lighting stuff, it's, it's all stunning stuff. But we'll put some links or photos in the show notes if, you don't, if you're trying to imagine what that looks like. But yeah, this double donut of lights that, uh, you know, if you, you, of course, eight on at a time is only what, 2,400 watts at a time. But I mean, can you imagine the <laughs> power rating for the having 256, 300 watt lights up there? Um, yes, you'd have melted uh, anyone that's sort of underneath it. But that isn't the only thing that was remarkable. As you said, I think the our Vegas studio stuff with that uh, orange um, uh, kind of dust in the air thing, all lit um, with these amazing uh, soft lights above, it's just extraordinary. Anyway, we'll put all that in the show notes. We really are out of time. It's been tremendous fun talking about this. I just think it's uh, – and I really do enjoy these discussions with you guys. I don't just say that, Nate. I also really enjoy getting feedback from you, uh, the listeners. We really appreciate it. I know a, a number of you, um, you know, l- listen to the whole show and uh, sort of send us emails about things. And every time you do that, I, I tell you, it just fuels us to do more. So thank you so much for the feedback and stuff. Um, and if you do want to put any comments on uh, iTunes or anyone else, we appreciate it. But we just do love hearing from you. So thanks so much. And if people do want to contact us, Matt, uh, where can people sort of get to you or send you links or whatever? Uh, the easiest way to get in touch with me is probably on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Matt Wallen. Uh, it's M-A-T-T-W-A-L-L-I-N. Um, otherwise, you can always find me um, in my usual haunts here in Richmond, Virginia at Virginia Commonwealth University's School of the Arts. And Jason? Uh Jason Diamond on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams. Uh, my website with my brother, the Diamond Bros. But I also, I forgot one thing, not to extend the show, but the Memory Makers, her oh, little device, so her yeah. little weird camera lens device thing from a production design standpoint, beautiful, knocked it? out of the park. Yeah. It knocked it so out of cool the park. Looking. Beautiful, but, and beautiful also thing. the little the the little visualizations she were ma- she was making also were beautifully done with the little stop starts and the totally. way that they were projected and everything. I just I, I kept meaning to point to that and getting derailed, but I just wanted to throw that out there because that was one of yeah, my favorites. Totally agree. So cool. Yeah, yeah, and we could discuss that a lot more. Um, I'm not. I'm, I was the only time I was not 100% happy with Ryan's reaction shot when he started throwing the furniture around, but that's a whole other podcast. So. Yeah. <laughs> but <Yes>. her <laughs> performance and her visual aesthetics and stuff, yeah, I totally agree with you. Magnificent. So a big, um, a huge amount of praise to the visual effects team that worked on this. And I just want to add one thing in finishing, which is so much was made, and I alluded to it at the start, about this not having an opening weekend box office that was, you know, sort of blockbuster breaking records, et cetera. Like we should not live in a world where the, the yardstick of a film's uh, success is just its opening box office weekend. I mean, it honestly, uh, the number of films that have had big openings and you would just never be able to remember their names in a pink fit versus those films that haven't had huge opening weekends and have gone on to become a part of popular culture, a part of our psyche, a part of our lives um, in a way that really touches people. And I just feel like reducing artistic success to a number of an opening weekend in one country is just so, such a totally indictment agree. of our society. Oh, yeah. Um, and so yep. I have no... And also... I'll- Go on. I was going to say, also, we looked it up, my brother and I, Blade Runner as a theatrical release has made $32 million to date. So they actually beat it or matched it in a weekend if you really wanted to look at metrics. Yeah. But, um, but I, I agree with you a million percent. Like 
some movies just aren't gonna aren't gonna kill it, but they they should be what they are. Like this is a successful film made by professionals who turned up and wanted to do a good job and did. Yep. And anyone Absolutely. that worked on this film should feel just so incredibly justified to uh, to you know have worked on this. And I feel like this absurd notion that the film somehow didn't succeed um, is just completely uh, symptomatic of things that are wrong with our Western well, it's society. Just, yeah. It's just about like the business of filmmaking. It's not about the art of cinema or the art of visual effects. And it's like, you know, I, I could give two shits about the business, you know, although I want people to remain employed, but when it's all said and done, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it shouldn't be the measure of, uh, the quality or, or, or success of a given endeavor, like yeah. a purely financial one. It feels like it's reducing filmmaking to a Tinder hot, not hot kind of, you know, hot dog, not totally. hot dog level mentality, which just does no justice to the creative <laughs> genius that goes into some of these uh, things we see. And I mean that at a visual effects level. So anyway, I just wanted to say yeah, at a personal yeah, yeah. level, and I'm sure you guys agree with me, that uh, we really yeah. appreciate the work you guys put in on this. And it's appalling the way that you were treated in the uh, in the popular press. Uh, I just, I was, I was outraged. Anyway, thank you so much guys for having time to listen to us. And uh, thank you for, of course, my co-host for being here. Um, we'll be coming back. We have there's a couple of films we've been dying to get to, but we, we kind of um, ended up on this one. There's been a, a, a real richness of uh, films out lately. So hopefully we'll be able to get to Mother and a few other things, um, which I know you guys are keen to do. But uh, if you've got any other ideas of films you'd like us to see, please uh, email us, let us uh, know what you think. I'm obviously Mike Seymour, and you can hit me at uh, mikes at fxguide.com if you want to email me. I uh, thank you also um, to uh, Ryan for his help in producing the show each week. And... Uh, also Matt who uh, does uh, and has for now some time been doing the editing on the show so thanks Matt we appreciate it okay guys until next time uh, we're out of here I am the real Mike Seymour though the digital one looks remarkably better than I do until next time see you guys if you have any questions or comments please email us at vfx at fxguide.com copyright fxguide LLC